0: Welcome to series three, episode three of To The Studio. Today, we have Mark Selby and Jordan Baseman as our guests. Mark Selby's practice mainly revolves around sculpture, installation, and film, using an engineering approach to materials, computation, and mechanics, in order to explore how images, objects, and human agency are affected by technological rationality. Creating and collaborating with machines to develop often complex and elongated processes of making, his works ask questions of access of information from both their aesthetics and function, asking what the potential and limits of programming, rules and instructions can offer. He studied his degree in BA Fine Arts at Nottingham Trent University in 2003, his MA and Fine art Sculpture at Wimbledon College of Art in 2008, and he's currently just about to complete his practice-based PhD at the Royal College of Art with a project titled Machines at Play, the Attraction of Automation, which asks how play may be used in an, in an antagonistic form against the regimentation of machines, but conversely, may also be employed to instrumentalize them through offering a pretense of familiarity. Previous exhibitions include the two-person show Work Hard, Play Hard at Belloni Gallery in London, a solo show called Rescue Kite at the Institute of Jamais View in London, and he also currently has a show of new work at Three Works in Scarborough. He's also run the curatorial projects, Product Placement, combining art and design practitioners at Angus Hughes Gallery, Unobtrusive Measures, which was exhibited in both London and Munich, and Coming Out of the Woodwork, an Arts Council funded installation project at the Nunnery Gallery in London. And alongside his art practice and research, he is a lecturer at the University of the Creative Arts. Originally from Philadelphia, Jordan Baseman lives and works in London, where he's currently the reader in time-based media at the Royal College of Art. He's received a BFA from Tyler School of Art, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and an MA from Goldsmiths College, University of London. Jordan has taught at many UK institutions and most notably the Wimbledon College of Art in London and the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art in Oxford. In recent years, Jordan has been artist in residence at Bema Centre for Contemporary Art in Omaha, Tokyo Wonder Site in Tokyo, the Helsinki International Arts Programme in Helsinki, and the British School at Rome. His work is best described as a synthesis of reportage, portraiture, documentary, creative non fiction, narrative practices that are combined with experimental filmmaking techniques. While often rooted in a personal narrative, these narratives act as a way to explore larger questions of cultural, political, and societal relations through works that are engaging both visually and in their narrative content. He was recently commissioned by Arts Council England and BBC Arts to create new work in lockdown for their hashtag culture in quarantine initiative. The resulting work, Fabula, explored dreaming in quarantine and is available on BBC iPlayer for the next year. In early 2021, Matt's Gallery London and Nerve Centre Derry will present a different kind of different, an experimental hand-drawn adult-oriented animated short film by Jordan. A Different Kind of Different deals with the psychological impact of physical difference, disfigurement and post-surgical trauma, particular reference to mastectomy tattoos. Jordan is currently represented by Matt's Gallery in London. So we were invited to Jordan's studio for our chat, which is based over in East London, and our chat travels through stories of destroyed self-portraits, Working in an emergency psychiatric unit, the intimacy of computers, putting screwdrivers through paintings and allowing space for hard work. And lastly, just to add a small correction to one of the answers at the end of our chat. Jordan mentions that Aretha Franklin went to Stax, but remember just after we stopped recording that it was actually Muscle Shoals. So thanks again for tuning in. Here's our chat. Okay, well, I think let's let's start off with you both kind of introducing yourselves with a bit of background and, and how you both found your way into making art. Thank
1: you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> <you're gonna. laughs>
2: well, it started a long time ago. Um, uh, well, I did a foundation in art in uh, 1999, I think. which was quite local to me uh, in Maidstone and uh, I don't know why I kind of went there I think I don't think I was very confident Um, I didn't want to go to London and so I chose to go somewhere local and I could sort of live at home and I went to Foundation because I thought I didn't really know what I wanted to do Um, actually I I never I'm not one of those people who goes I was born to be an artist I think I kind of knew that I liked making things with my hands and that was about as far as it went. So I went there and yeah, it was a great year of just sort of testing things out and trying stuff out. And I ended up actually floating between like doing three dimensional design. I was really interested in Japanese architecture, which I really loved. I, wrote, I remember writing an essay about Japanese architecture. <laughs> and, um, and sort of sculpture. And in, yeah, in the end, Decided to go sort of fine art. I think it was a sort of freedom, I suppose, of sort of keeping. Yeah. I I felt like I was sort of still you know working through something. I mean I I had no idea what I was doing. And then uh, from that went to Nottingham, did my degree, stayed up there for a bit. Afterwards, as well. Um, And then sort of lost my way for a little bit, and then thought. But I wanted to sort of get back to making work and came uh, back to London actually, and have a flat in Southeast London. Uh, got a studio with me in Deptford in Childers Street. Um, right at the top, it was like a shared studio, and it was like you know, you know, gridded sort of studio, plastic sheeting on the top. You know, you know, you know the one. Uh, <laughs> freezing in winter. Mm. Uh, and there was this guy down the way who used to smoke cigars inside, which is I, can't, I, don't, I don't think you're allowed to. But and it's, it's, every time you go in, that smell of stale cigars. <laughs> He'd made these horrible portraits. <clears throat> um, but I had that for a couple of years, and that was be, it. Was re- it was you know great. I made loads of sort of new work, and yeah, sort of felt quite sort of engaged, I had to sort of send things off and do a few shows and stuff. And then I felt like I needed to have a bit more critical input. Um, like, I think it's all very well, people saying that, oh, you know, I'm really kind of self-critical, I can analyze myself and what I'm doing. And so, I mean, I think, you know, you need somebody else, I think sometimes, who's outside of you to kind of point and say what you're kind of doing or thinking and point those things that you kind of miss. So I chose to go, well, I applied to lots of different places to do an MA. Um, I applied to Goldsmiths and got an interview, but I had a really bad experience at interview. Um, I applied to the Slade, took my slides along in my little box heard nothing back from that. And then I applied to Wimbledon as well and had a really good experience at the interview. Um, it, was really, it was quite relaxed, it was kind of really friendly. And I think for someone who's quite sort of anxious or nervous, you know, situations, it kind of made me think, well, you know, this this might be good for me, kind of in, in London, but kind of non the edge edge of London, not quite, you know, not quite so pressured as places like perhaps like Goldsmiths and Slade and, and St Martin's and Chelsea and that lot. So yeah, did that for a year, Uh calendar year. So it was a calendar year rather than like twelve months rather than academic year. Um, met Jordan. Um, in fact, the reason that I went there was because uh, Jordan was teaching there, although I didn't realise that he was on sabbatical when I came to the interview, which was a bit of a mistake. <coughs> um, that was but, the best year of him, was Yeah. He did return, thankfully. Um, because I, I knew the connection with Matt's gallery. And, I mean, was just, you know, when I was, I think, um, like, Mike Nelson had always been a big, like, um, inspiration to, to me, I think, from, you know, from from seeing his work in venice when i was younger when sort of traveling around europe and and seeing that kind of going on that journey to see that the work you know the geodeca and Paul reef and it was kind of you know it was it wasn't just the work it was also the kind of journey of getting to the work and the narrative which comes sort of construction build up and everything Mm. and and, um and you know matt's you know what still does but then had that reputation you know where kind of you know might not at the gallery space for like a couple of months, I think, and kind of just you know to to build that that work, which is kind of a, you know mad luxury, you know, when you think about it, and um, and yeah, and, and, and you know other artists that kind of work with Matt Gallery. so I, I kind of that that was why I sort of went went there. Cool. Um, yeah, do you want me to keep going? Because I mean, I'm only up to about two thousand. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, from from being at Wimbledon, um, I had a really good year. Met some really great people. Um, I think the people there were kind of, some, you know, the, you know, it was a mix of people, obviously. But um, in the main, I think you know it was a good, it was a good time, and there was some good shooters uh, there as well not 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 even necessarily in sculpture, but um but we 're really supportive, I think, and that 's the main thing, isn 't it? I think sometimes mm. we kind of want all this sort of criticality and you know everything else, but actually sometimes you just need to be supportive yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. uh, not handheld you know, but kind of you know um yeah a bit of positivity i suppose really mm. and yeah after after I did that, i kind of um uh, won this award thing. Through UAL and Clifford Chance to do a, do a project to pay for some money, which then sort of paid for keeping a studio for a little bit afterwards. Um, and yeah, just kept on making work really. Whilst then also kind of starting, I started to do a bit of teaching around then as well when I finished. I'd, I'd already been working as a technician um, and so got to doing a bit of teaching and then the teaching kind of picked up a bit more. And that kept on paying then for the studio, mm-hmm. and, and sort of became a bit of a dream. You I know, tried to keep that balance, which is a very tricky balance between, as we all know, you know, between money, you know, making some money, make, keeping your practice going, you know, having a life outside of art and everything else as well. Um, yeah, so that's, that sort of went on for a, that's, that sort of went on for a while, uh, making, work, doing shows, mm. and uh, work sort of slowly changed. I think it has changed slowly over time. Um, I don't tend to make sort of huge, huge leaps in, in what I do. It's mm. always been kind of very sculptural, I suppose. But um, I think it changed from being sort of more quite. I think I was working through something still, even on MA, about something sort of biographical mm. in a way. And I think I sort of moved, started to move away from that and become much more um, sort of critically aware. Think, of about like how what the work was doing in terms of not just about me, but about everything else. And mm. I think that's what you know, that's, that's a really sort of important transition and, and then it got to the point where I was doing sort of teaching and, 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 and making art and, and research started to become an increasingly kind of bigger thing um, in terms of sort of um, research in the institution, academic research. Uh, and I never really intended to do a PhD, uh, actually. It was, a re- it was kind of a sort of vague notion. Uh, and I sort of thought about kind of applying some places and Jordan said, why, why don't you just fly to the RCA? Come on down. Uh, so I applied and then the next thing I remember is standing on Battersea Bridge being, like, so nervous <laughs> about to go and deliver this sort of presentation to, um, you know, these kind of people. And, and you, know, re- you know, these kind of you know, research academics appear quite um, intimidating, really, you know, there's a sort of it still has this feeling of being quite archaic, you know, like I know, I know more than you do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not that I think it, it shouldn't be like that at all, actually, but um, uh, it was okay. You know, it was the presentation was fine. And I, think, I think I, you know, I, I clearly had a long way to go. Um, I think in terms of learning about kind of what research in art or kind of what practice-based mm. research is in art. But then having said that, I think in general, um, the understanding of what practice-based or practice-led research in art, you know, is still an ongoing <laughs> conversation today, and, and so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I was kind of, um, you know, going <laughs> all guns blazing, thinking I had the answers or anything. And um, yeah, got offered, got offered a place, and and started, and so I've been doing that for the past sort of six years, part time. Uh, coming to the end of it now, so yeah. And that—that's what sort of brings me up to where we are, I suppose. I really. mm. so Jordan's my supervisor, um, and uh, then so <laughs> supervisor. <my life. laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> t- takes me out at the weekends, uh, <laughs> uh, and t- and uh, then obviously after sort of confirmation, you go from sort of MPhil to PhD, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I've got Tim Tim O'Reilly as my sort of second second supervisor, mm. uh, and it's great, really. I kind of you know I've struggled with it. I, I, you know, quite a lot, but um, I think it gets to a point where you kind of have to be a bit more assertive about kind of like saying no to things actually. And sort of, you know, mm. there are so many voices, and what you're doing is kind of so small actually, you know, that that really you you have to have some confidence in knowing that that is you know what you're doing is valid and that you don't need to keep adding more things in from mm. other people. And I think when I got to that point, suddenly. Things seem to make sense, and the relationship between writing and practice, and other things in, in research, start to make more sense to me. And so, actually, probably you know, since since the past sort of couple of years, it, it's kind of it's, it feels like it is kind of coming to an end in quite a sort of you know succinct, kind of quite nice nice way, thankfully, not into a sort of chaotic chaotic end. So um, yeah, which is obviously very thankful to Jordan because I think I don't think you know I wouldn't. I wouldn't have managed it, I don't think, without without him and his support and his, um his positivity, but also the critical kind of mm. uh, guidance. I mean, a good example, actually. I think I was I was telling you David the other day about um, <laughs> um, at the MA show right at the very end. I had this wood delivery arrive, and it had been stamped by the um, mm. by the wood building company with like not not just the stickers, but with ink on it. Yeah, man, man. Yeah, and I. I just, I totally freaked out, I kind of, because I'm quite a sort of, you know, detail, mm. you know, kind of, I like accuracy, and I don't like things to sort of, you know, but are not, you know, out of my, out of my vision, blindside me, and uh, so I wrote Jordan this email <laughs> at the weekend, I think it was on Sunday, and I wrote like, oh my god, you won't believe it, it's turned up, and it's like this, and it's kind of, it's, 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 you know, it's going to ruin it, it's going to make it like look like I'm kind of like a product placement advert for, <laughs> you know, I can't remember the company, well, actually I do remember the company. Champion Timber. Champion. It was Champion Timber, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, and, and all I remember is just this reply that said, you know, the th- I think the first question was, are you all right? <laughs> 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 kind of, uh, take a breath, calm down, look at it on Monday, it will be all right. Mm. And, and I think that's the thing isn't it, you can't, this is what I mean, about sort of getting so inside yeah. something you're worrying about this thing and actually, you know, in the end, you know, it, it, I mean, it does matter. Those things do matter. Yeah. I think attention to detail about the way things appear, mm-hmm. what you're expecting, kind of the, the level of, kind of detail things, it is really, really important. Um, but if things don't go your way, you know, don't, I think the thing, you know, I do, I, 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 sometimes used to have to think I'm a tendency to sort of let, let that just ruin everything and then kind of not give up, but kind mm-hmm. of feel quite negative about it, yeah. but actually you can, you it's like you have to sort of move on, don't you, and kind of um, try and get your, Sander out. <laughs> no, I, didn't do that now. I left it in the end. Yeah. What an intro. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Three minute intro.
0: Yeah. Dan <laughs> Jordan, what about you? What, what, what was? What's your background, and how did you get into? How did I get into
1: art? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I was born to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew it so much. Uh. I didn't ever, uh, I'm trying to keep it really simple, I didn't ever think I was going to go to college. I wasn't interested in going to college. I wasn't a very happy teenager. I wasn't a very good student. I had been a good student, but I decided not to be a good student. Although if you told me that at the time, I would really just hate it. But I definitely decided not to. But I had some really great teachers who uh, Louise Clark and Vita Solomon were just amazing people, because they saw something in me. and they, I liked making things, I liked taking things apart, I, couldn't, I could never reassemble them, so I made something else from them. But I was, I just always made stuff, always. My mom always made things. Um, and in high school, I was, I was that kid that made everybody pipes so they could smoke dope. Make, like, I made stash boxes for people, all that kind of stuff, like jewelry and metalsmithing. I, I went to a very progressive high school at the time, and you could, I was okay at English, so I passed these English exams, which meant I didn't have to take English anymore. I could do these other electives. I was in like, some advanced programming. And it wasn't that advanced, believe me. It just was not that advanced, but comparatively speaking, it Um, was advanced. So I spent like I think my senior year in high school, my last year, I had, I think, one class to attend, and the rest of the time I had I had an independent study degree, which meant I was just in the jewelry room making stash boxes and pipes for every kid in school. (laughs) And my teachers were like, you should apply to art school, you should apply to art school, you should apply to art school. And I, we lived not that far from one of the, a really good school, Tyler School of Art. I didn't want to be at home and I didn't want to go to college, but I did apply, and Mrs. Clark was amazing. Uh, she really helped me with my portfolio, I couldn't draw, I can't draw, I don't draw. Mm-hmm. Um, But I applied, and I got in on a condition that I took a drawing course over the summer, because I could not fucking draw at all. (laughs) And um, it was a life drawing course, and I took it. My parents didn't want me to go to art school, but I did. Anyway, it's a long story, but I did. I did. Um, And uh, the precondition was that I take this summer drawing school and then get assessed at the end of August. And I will never forget getting that letter saying that, I was, that I was, my acceptance was confirmed. That was like such a huge thing because it meant that I was going somewhere else than where everybody I knew was going. And I was going somewhere else than my family were currently. And I was just going somewhere else. So I didn't care where, but I was going somewhere else. And by that time I had uh, I graduated from high school, which in itself was a bit of a miracle. And I'd been accepted to college, which was fucking incredible. And I was going. So I, but I always wanted to do something, I don't know what I wanted to do, but I like always wanted to make stuff, I didn't know what that meant, but, um, some uh, American schools are very different than British schools, and so our foundation is part of our undergraduate degree. <clears throat> My first year at school was incredibly challenging, because I cannot draw. And the first, um, the first year, for the first half of the year you had figure, you had life drawing from the figure and the second half you had experimental drawing and my first week in school, the first day in life drawing, um, Chuck Schmidt, I'm sure he's not walking to earth any longer. Um, Chuck Schmidt was, my, was the drawing guy and we had to do life-size self-portraits, that was the assignment for the week and the crit was on Friday and I can't draw. I got a big piece of paper and mine was just terrible. Mine was just so bad. So we then went into the room and hung them all up. They were all around the room. Chuck Schmidt picked on mine first and said, who did this? Self portrait. Who did this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that tells you a little bit about <laughs> And then I raised my hand. He said, get out of my room. You don't belong here. And I was like, fuck. And I didn't think he was serious. He's like, and he took, he's taking my drawing down off the wall, as he's saying this, is famous, ripping it up in shred And shreds. I'm like, okay, you mean this? And I left and I wasn't allowed back in his class. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> What's it Chuck Schmidt, he was an interesting dude because he he was NASA's artist in residence. And he 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 was it's just interesting in itself, this kind of th- scene I'm about to um so his role as the NASA artist in residence was to paint the space shuttle being launched live. So, which is kind of cool, right? right? So he'd be there with a fucking easel, <laughs> <laughs> in the Florida um, Everglades, <laughs> <laughs> where the fuck it was, painting like the shuttle launch. He also was the White House staff calligrapher for the Kennedy administration. Wow! Whoa! Well, which is quite a role. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, respect to Chuck Schmidt, but he was a jerk. You know, that's not, like, it's not a really great education thing to to do that. Um, Anyway, I persevered. I didn't give up. And I made it through art school. Um, And it's, I I really didn't have a great time in my, I made a lot of friends, and it was a great experience personally, but I was a bit confused, and I just was, I just had no clue what I was doing. Um, And I, there was three years off in between my, three years between my VA, my VFA and my MA. In that time, in the interim period, I, I worked full time when I went to school, because it was the only way that I could afford to go. And I worked at a, an emergency psychiatric uh, unit in Norristown State Hospital. Um, where, when Bill Cosby had his trial, that was at Norristown um, County, county courtroom, because apparently he lived in Norristown, lives in prison in Norristown. Right? <laughs> anyway, so I worked there for four and a half years, and it was an amazing job. I was, my great title, I was a human service worker, mm-hmm. and um, wow. my role was to look after new admissions. Initially it was to look after new admissions, and to help people get showered and changed and ready for their exam for the psychiatrist. which is quite a thing to do with mm. people. Um, then I kind of graduated to a role where I worked with the EMTs, the emergency medical technicians, and when we went to pick people up in Burger King or in wherever. Mm. Um, that was amazing. It was I loved that job. It was really challenging. Um, part of the biggest thing that was um, anyway I won't go there. Uh, a lot of people I knew ended up going through there. Mm. And so it was, an, it was an amazing, amazing job, until the day that Roger Morgan, the heavyweight state uh, wrestling champion, um, I don't know what Roger had done, but he was not very well. And he was a huge human being. And part of our job was to help the nurses sedate Roger. Roger was a fucking animal. There was no... <laughs> Roger was huge. Roger was... He, thank God, he arrived, this is a horrible story. I don't know if I should tell this, but. for it Was really nasty. Oh, Roger arrived on a stretcher in uh, full leather restraints. So it is quite a situation, mm. but fortunately he arrived that way. So we didn't have to do that to him because that, that's really difficult. But he was in seclusion in a room and he was medicated, but Roger was big, so they got the medication thing wrong or something. I'm not sure what happened, but Roger got free of his restraints. He was in isolation, so, and there was nothing else in the room except for a um, cast iron radiator, which Roger pulled off the wall and threw through the door. Jeez. And then we were supposed to confront Roger. And it was at that point, I was like, you know what, I'm not sure I want to work here <laughs> And uh, And this was after a few friends had been there and a family member had been through there. And it was, and, and I didn't know any of this until like, I arrived at work that day. You look at the census and you go, that's my uncle. <laughs> like, seriously. Mm. And so that was, that was really challenging on lots of levels. And also it was time to leave. Because it paid for my undergraduate degree, which is why I was working there. I mean, it, this is how desperate they were. My reference fell through. I had, a, I had a job at the Citgo gas station in Jacketown, Pennsylvania, pumping gas all through high school. Gabe DiPalantonio, I'm mean, naming Gabe De Palantonio. <laughs> he, <laughs> De Palantonio. Uh, he gave me the worst reference. And the hospital were like, you know, your reference said that you stole from the cash register, which was absolutely bullshit. I've never stolen anything in my life. Done lots of other things, but I've never done that. And I have no clue why Gabriel Palantonio lied, but fortunately the hospital, they were great, because they were like, we'd really like you to work here, meaning we're so desperate, we're so desperate, (laughs) we're (laughs) so desperate, do you have another reference, they didn't say they were desperate, but obviously their desperation was screaming through the phone, anyway, I got this job. Um, And then I got a job in a costume store, making hats, shoes and accessories, which is an amazing thing. I was an apprentice mask maker and that was the last job I had before I came here. Um, I came here and also had an interview at the Slade and um, at Goldsmiths. I was working in a job I hated. I came here, I fell in love with somebody and I came here to be with them. And then, rightfully so, you know, you you get somewhere because you love somebody, but you need need your own reason to be somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I had a job, and it was terrible, and I hated it. And um, I had two interviews, one for slate, one for Goldsmiths, got into both, but I did not like the slate at all. And Goldsmiths, I had a really good experience at Goldsmiths mm-hmm. in their interview. It was, the windows were open, the lights were on, it was a round table, and I, that was impressive to me. Whereas at Slate, I walked in the room, the, the slide was pointing at you so that you couldn't see the people. They did not introduce themselves. They were horrible. It was just like some fucking power trip, which was just bullshit. Anyway, so I went to Goldsmiths and, and had a challenging time there. Mm-hmm. I was way out of my depth. Everybody was like really up on contemporary art in a way that I just wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time in the library learning stuff. I went to go see shows and whatever. That was a long time ago. It's when Goldsmiths was just beginning to be whatever it's become. Mm-hmm. And then I just stayed here. I didn't mean to stay, it's just kind of happened, and I, I somehow found that I got a job, after Goldsmiths I got, I did lots of shitty jobs, all through Goldsmiths I did, sh- I worked at a pizza place in Stepney, um, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, and it was up until 3 o'clock in the morning, and after the clubs and the pubs closed, it was hard, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a hard gig, I did that for a couple of years, that was hard. But, you know, it was kind of I got paid and, in cash and I got to eat pizza for free and I got a couple of beers on the night, so it, I was glad for the job even though it was shit. Mm-hmm. I was very glad for it because it meant I could stay here, I could be here mm-hmm. even though I wasn't allowed to be here. After graduating, um, I, yeah, I, I got some other jobs, did some painting and decorating. And on a painting and decorating job, I met somebody whose partner worked at the Serpentine Gallery as a technician. And the painting and decorating job we were doing was for the guy that did the windows in Harrods. And this was like specialist painting and decorating, like with feathers to do marbling and shit. Mm. I can't draw. I can just about paint, but I can't draw. And so I learned how to do that, and it was kind of fun. But this guy, this, this guy's partner, the guy who worked at Serpentine, told me that there was a technician job going in I applied for it and I didn't get it. But they, I then started working there freelance. And then I worked there for a good two and a half years, and met loads of people learned more there installing work than I ever did at any art school that I ever attended. <laughs> because it was, I was practically installing physical works, yeah. and that was amazing. Mm. Um, we hung the, Robert Cooper's first show in the UK. It was an amazing thing. I mm. um, worked on that for about two weeks. It was a hardcore install. He didn't come, his assistant came. And then he came, I think, three days before the show, and I'll never forget this. He walked into the North Gallery and looked up and said, it's really great, but you didn't do the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) It was wallpaper, and we were like, it's like two days, three days before the show opened, and we're like, it's a damaged ceiling. Wow. Did you do it? Yeah, we did it. It was fucking intense. It was amazing. I learned so much. We installed Hamish Fulton, (laughs) and I had... I had uh, like quite a big role in that. But I got all the measurements wrong, like every single one, and we painted it on the wall. It's painted on the wall. This was not vinyl sticker, right? And I was like, and I had to tell him. I found out. And I was like, shit. I had to tell the gallery manager, and I did. He's like, you gotta tell him, and he was great. He's like, you know what? I think it looks a little bit better. I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, you're just being nice. Like, no, no, no. I was like, yeah, I know you are. <laughs> One more serpentine story. My first day there, on uh, Alistair Warman, who was a lovely, lovely human being, and unfortunately he just died not that long ago. Really, really lovely guy. My first day at the Serpentine Gallery, we took taking down Alexander Rychenko show at uh, Rychenko and Stefanova. It's amazing work, right? Yeah. Taking a mirror plate off the back of his painting, I my screen driver goes right through the canvas. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm on my own in the gallery and like I just put a hole through the Red painting. <laughs> like, what do I do? It's like, either I go or I tell him. And ordinarily, I probably, I would have I gone. But I don't know what compelled me, but I just, I marched upstairs and I said, look, I'm really sorry. Look what I've done. And he's like, oh, don't do it. That's what the insurance is for. <laughs> Then the person from the Russian embassy comes over and answer and says, Look, look, look at this painting. Look at this painting. And she's like, oh. She puts it in the crate, sits on top of the painting to, to like squish it down in the crate. And I'm thinking, I'm worried I'll put a screwdriver. This yeah, painting. yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I used to hear stories about Victoria Miro and the technicians there and some of the. They used to pay for a kit. like I can't remember what poop who, who it was, but the paintings arrived and they were still wet when they were sent. So they had <laughs> tissue nice. stuck to the front. And they were like, Oh, my shit, how are we going to. At least they phoned up the, the conservator that they usually came around. I don't know about it. He literally just spat on a piece of <laughs> like, tissue and, and just sort of rubbed it off and went and spat. Like, that is actually the best thing you can do, apparently. For an well, office. if you've got
1: the confidence to do something like that, yeah good for you. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Confidence yeah. and the knowledge yeah, <laughs> yeah. to do something like that. To back it up with. Oh, I learned so much at that job, it was so great. Mm. And I've, I've made some really good friends there too. It was an amazing, amazing job. Mm. <clears throat> The Rolling Stones had. I think it might have been Mick Jagger's 50th birthday party there. It was the one <laughs> when Prince Richards cut his finger or something, and they, they had to stop playing. It was, and we went, and there was a David Nash show on at the time, so they rented out the Serpentine Gallery, and they wanted it from midnight to six in the morning. So we de-installed the David Nash show, which was a motherfucker to install in the first place. Excuse my foul mouth, but Jesus, it was, it was a thing. So we, we de-installed that show, made the gallery ready, then attended this party because that was the thing. We got to go. We got paid triple time and we had to reinstall it for the next day's opening as if nothing had ever happened. Oh, which wow. we did. Well, from like 6 in six to 9 or something? It opened, I think, at 10, <laughs> or it might have been 11. But it was that was, it was hardcore. It was really hardcore. Did you win to the party too? We did go to the party, it's <laughs> like the most boring bar mitzvah you've ever been <laughs> But my friend Matthew, who was um, a technician mm-hmm. then yeah, at the surf club, he he's like he went up to make Jagger and, him in, and, and, and and he cripped his neck and his elbow and kissed him full of lips. And then he let him go and he's like, he securely just tackled Matthew to the <laughs> It was the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen in my life. Nick Jagger was just like walking away, like brushing yeah. off his shirt. Anyway, the Serpentine, it was great. Yeah. And it was before, it was right before and during it, kind of its transition to what it is now. Mm. So, and after that, I then, <clears throat> through the Serpentine, started doing lots of education work, did gallery talks mm. on things I had no clue about at all. <laughs> but I would read and kind of spew out this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I mean that was great. I did lots of freelance mm. uh, gallery education stuff for years at the Whitechapel, yeah. certain time mm. we Royal Academy, Hayward, ICA, everywhere. I was, I was all over, mm. and there was a bunch of us that were um, that did that. And Alistair woman, invited me into Byam Shaw. He had been the director of the Serpentine Gallery, and then he got a job at Byam Shaw. And I had some work in the White Chapel Open. That's how long ago this was. So oh. a long, long, long time ago. <laughs> 92, maybe. And um, I came in, did a talk, and then he invited me back. And then I did a bunch of freelance teaching. I got my first real contract uh, in like the late 90s, 98, I think, at the Ruskin in Oxford. I was the tutoring sculptor there for three and four and a half years. It was a three year job, renewable once, I got renewed, it's like getting renewed, you knew you had to leave, mm-hmm. so I got lucky, Wimbledon came up, and I got that job. did that for um, like 11 years, and then the job at the Royal College came up and I didn't get it the first time. And then all kinds of shenanigans happened and I got a call mm-hmm. asking me if I wanted to come in and do that job and I was like, no way. Because at that time, uh, just then, I uh, quit Wimbledon, got a job. I had three jobs in one day. And one, <laughs> one was at the University of Brighton one was at Chelsea and one was at the Royal College of Work. And I, I could choose. I was, it, was, it was stupid. Um, but it was just the way that something happened. Mm. And I, I had actually already taken the Brighton job, but then I called them and said, I changed my mind, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and so I, w- I did the head of sculpture job at Royal College for three years, mm-hmm. and then uh, transitioned into the role I have now, which is uh, working with the an image. And so I don't. Naively, I didn't realize that uh, running, this isn't why I stopped, but it's part of the reason, but I didn't realize that running sculpture was a management position. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds stupid, but I just didn't realize that. And I didn't realize that, um, yeah, I just didn't want to manage people. Mm-hmm. I didn't. yeah. I think talking to people about art is really great, mm-hmm. you know, it's like pretty easy too, mm-hmm. actually. So I struggled when people found it hard to do that, like staff. I found that really, like, what an amazing privilege And you're getting paid to do this, mm-hmm. to express your opinion about this thing this person cares about more than any other thing in their life, and you're finding that hard. Like, even if it's like you don't like chocolate, you can find something that interests you, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's where it comes from or... The history mm-hmm. of that, or the ingredients that make that one thing up, or mm-hmm. whatever you know, whatever yeah. you can extend yourself a little. So I found that really challenging. Not the sculpture staff were great. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I, there were once in a while I'd be like, I don't understand, and my role was to like mm-hmm. make all kinds of judgments about that thing. Anyway, I didn't want to do that, and I got very lucky that I was able that they, that it was a position of open, and the college allowed me to transition into that position. Yeah. So I got really lucky. Mm. And I'm, um, I'm not that academic. So it's hilarious that I supervise Mark on his PhD. Because I don't have one myself. I did an afternoon course at Wimbledon where the guy that was teaching it fell asleep because he had been at the pub. So I've done this supervising uh, PhD degree.
2: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did Do I, I get a refund <laughs> on <of> my Royal <laughs> College uh, <laughs> later? I need get pay. <laughs> <laughs> So, but I, think, I, I, I yeah. I mean, I don't know. If, you know, having a PhD makes you a good <laughs> academic or good artist.
1: I just shot myself in the head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, seeing as you, seeing as you, as you both teach, how do you find that relationship between teaching and your own practice?
2: How is how is that balance for you both? Uh, could I just say I've been totally out introed, <laughs> <Gordon, Yes>. <laughs> Just, just for, ask, for us, I want. Like, when you did the work in the Whitechapel, was that were you still making sculpture then? Yeah. That, yeah. So when
0: was that? Yeah. What? Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I. wanted to ask actually. Yeah. Before we go on to the stuff about teaching. Yeah. What?
1: What work was it then
0: that you were making? Was it? Was
1: it sculptural? Yeah. So I. I. Um, I did make objects and installations Mm. and some photographs, but I did that for forever until 1998. I stopped doing that. um, Almost at the same time, I got a job at the Ruskin. Those two things weren't connected. I was the tutor in sculpture, that was my title at the Ruskin, but it just. Um, You love making things, you love making things, I love making things. Mm. You know, you make stuff your whole life and then, again, this might sound naïve, but I don't care. Um, You make stuff your whole life and then people start paying attention to what you're doing, if you're lucky. And then that becomes an interesting thing. It's not why you're doing it, but it's a nice byproduct of what you're doing. Um, And then I got into a situation where I was selling a lot of stuff. And that was kind of great too. I'd never made any money from work. Excuse me, that's, I still think it's amazing that people make money from their work. I think that's an incredible thing for people to do, however that occurs. But you've also got to be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so I got to a point where um, <clears throat> I just stopped being okay with that. And part of that is, is gonna make me sound like I'm much more precious about what I do than I am. I am not at all precious about what I do, but I remember having I was, I was an artist in residence at Camden Art Center and, and I was having like this this amazing studio was making this work, whatever, having studio visits from all these galleries, which was pretty great, right And then I remember this a curator saying, "You know, if you make 10 of them, I can sell every single one, which is fine. there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not what I wanted to do. It's just not what I wanted to do. And there was that, and a couple of other things happened at the same time along those kinds of lines, and uh, and it, it just it made me think that I didn't really want to work with people that I didn't like that much, if I didn't have to, and I didn't have to, so I stopped doing that. Yeah. And I also and I thought at first I was going to like. I wasn't like, oh, I'm never making it again, like in a dramatic way. It was more like, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know what I'm gonna do, mm-hmm. but. And I got lucky. I got really lucky because when all that stuff was going around in my head, I, and I, I had some health issues too, um, which also contributed to this. But I worked. At, I got this new job at the rescue and they got all these brand new computers delivered almost on my first day of school. I didn't know how to use a computer. Places, email was just beginning to be a common thing in universities, mm-hmm. 1998, this was. So the internet, I mean, internet cafes, people went to internet. I mm. went to internet cafes to use the internet, mm. you know, so mm. having, I had a, I had a modem at home, but it was like, you know, it took about three years to get anywhere. Um, so I then started to read computer manuals and teach mm. myself how to use computers. and read software manuals to learn how to use software. All that, it wasn't all online then. Mm. You couldn't, there weren't online tutorials because mm. there wasn't a network to do mm. that. And so I, I taught myself a lot on my own by screwing up and fucking up and making shitloads of mistakes. And just really, I had done what I'd always wanted to do which was to make films and um, less physical things. And I think even though, I think I'm a lot, Happier, I think. I'm, I think the work I'm making is more interesting. Of course, I'm going to say that, but yeah. um, I miss. I still make stuff. I just don't show it. Mm. <clears throat> Pretty much, I make things to film and then I destroy them. But yeah,
2: mm. it's funny. The thing about the computer, I remember it being like two thousand two. We did like a semester at university where we could go and go off to another department in the university, and we I went to sort of do um uh, web design you know real like coding html really clunky everything's in tables and Mm. boxes and everything Uh, but i really enjoyed i really enjoyed it but i never really made the connection between like that as a sort of burgeoning you know kind of technology thinking oh i could use that in my Mm. practice until like much much later on but actually that kind of use of sort of structure of the computer, I think, it was like I was sort of waiting for that to kind of suddenly go, oh, actually I can, that's what I kind of want to, mm. uh, you know, I can use and can understand and sort of make sense in terms of making work, I think.
1: I think for me, the thing that really changed everything for me was getting to a point where I wanted to be out in the world doing stuff. And then I didn't want to be able to do stuff. So I wanted both mm-hmm. of those things. So like yeah, getting to know computers really enabled me to be inside doing something. Mm-hmm. And filming allowed me to be outside doing something. And I really like that kind of open-ended, insane possibility that you're going to record something. And then the more, and the like the emotional thing, and the more intellectual thing of trying to assemble something mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. And, I love computers. I don't know much about them, but um, they're pretty incredible things. I mean, they, it's amazing that we were all talking about Zoom earlier. It's amazing what actually Zoom enables you to do. Mm. And I know it's a pain in the ass and it sucks, but mm. if, you, if you take that part, <laughs> the work thing away, if you just think about it objectively. It's mm. like the fact that you could be anywhere in the world with anyone and have a simultaneous conversation mm. in real time with pretty damn good quality sound and image, mm. that's fucking incredible, mm. right? You know, it's like mind blowing. And it's, it's funny, you're also all talking about people being used to screens, how much people are t- take that for granted. And yeah. Especially like now in the mm. pandemic and how much the internet is like really coming into its own. And computing is becoming this thing that is even more intimate than it's ever been. It's it's just interesting. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about when
2: uh, came we drove around Soho. Late at late at night, filming and, and, and really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it was two thousand nine. Was that two thousand nine? And I, I was sort of thinking about that now. Like if you repeated that kind of project now, what that would what that would look like? I mean. No I mean, there would be no people, yeah, but even the feeling of it, that feeling, because it was kind of this sort of thing of going out and there's that gathering of material, isn't there, like out in the world and not knowing what you're shooting, because it was all done on an analogue film, obviously, and then, and then, yeah, sort of taking it, I mean, I never saw what happened when it, when it goes back to the studio, but uh, in my head, uh, I think you, you mentioned you did it in Bucky, it was sort of just done I in mean, bucket, it was yeah. kind of, so again, there's sort of chance and sort of serendipity about it, and I think, I think I, I really kind of chime with that feeling of like sort of going out and sort of doing something and then seeing what ha- you know, kind of bringing it back and trying to assemble and see what happens when it's kind of re recomposed or kind of re-booked back together again.
1: Well, it's interesting to think about, I'm um, just listening to you now and thinking about what you were saying about research before, about like learning how to, not learning how to research or understanding the depth of research, is mm-hmm. that, that's what I'm thinking when you're saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You know, I think you know, research as being a really sort of active activity mm-hmm. you know I think that's what art allows research to be doesn't it I mean I mean the all research is active but like, literally physically mm-hmm. kind of out there in the world whatever the end output is what it mm-hmm. ends up being you, you kind of have that opportunity to, to allow allows you to sort of engage in the world in a way that I think obviously other you know forms of re- research that might be based in the laboratory or based in whatever mm-hmm. kind of there's that sort of social you know kind of Element to that I think you know, but well, I mean your 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 work sort of explores that half more than more than mine
1: does. But I think it looks like it does, but it doesn't. really <laughs> 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 I don't would never plan to have any kind of socially engaged practice at all. No, uh, it's no. like I I the people I work with are participants. They they want to participate, but they're not. Uh, they're certainly not co-authors, or whatever, and mm. they're not. I don't to get anything from it. <laughs> 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 it's just some lousy film
0: that nobody wants to watch. Well, recently, well, it was only yesterday, Mark, me and you talked about the balance between research and practice.
1: That was your question, wasn't it? Yeah, the... yeah, well, yeah. well the, first, the
0: first question was that you both teach and how that kind of yeah. feeds or doesn't feed into what you make. And I guess that also can be kind of tied with... The... And then another question is how you find the balance between research and practice and how those things
2: co-mingle for you. Co-mingle? That's, I like that idea. Something that co-mingle. Um... Well, I mean, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, you, I suppose I'm lucky if you work in a sort of education institution, you have access to things, you know, first of all, mm. practically, that you don't, you know, might not otherwise, or perhaps very difficult to get hold of otherwise. So you're very fortunate, you know, I have um, resources that are there, you know, that, that, that can be used that might otherwise cost an absolute um, sort of fortune to do it independently. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that side... Um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's quite a fraught relationship, I guess, between sort of research and and what's being asked of you in one sense, and then what you want to do with research. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing for me is that I I've separated out um, like what I would call sort of academic research, and then my practice. I, I don't really want to feel like like I'm just a researcher. Mm-hmm. I feel like like I can use my practice to perhaps investigate one particular thing really closely on a really sort of granular level if I wanted to, or have been, I think, and that's what you do at PhD, but actually, and that can be really useful, because you can take things out of that obviously back then into your practice in the future, but I don't think like research isn't a sort of summary of your sort of entire, you know, Everything that you believe in, mm-hmm. I think it's just they're just sort of you know for me elements, projects, projects, you know, the mm-hmm. projects and um, and then yeah the practice is is kind of like yeah you know you it, the, the to say there's no relation is sort of ridiculous but um, but the practice is still something different it happens in the studio when I'm just kind of there and prodding things around mm-hmm. or kind of pushing things around or and and you know to me that's more important than than doing um not more important than doing research but i think you, you kind of need to do that to kind of maintain a level of sanity if nothing else yeah uh because research can be a bit you know i think when you're kind of looking at subjects and you're kind of getting quite in depth with it it can be quite all-encompassing all or overwhelming and that, i don't know how healthy that is either for me personally yeah, yeah. um so yeah Yeah, it's, take, it's, take, it's taken quite a while for mm. me to understand that that difference yeah. between what I, and I think it's different for everybody. I, I'm not sure there is a unified like idea of what a definition between research and practice. I think I think it's down to you to kind of, if you want to compartmentalise it a bit like what I do, then mm. you know because that's that's a sort of way of working methodology. Then that's mm. fine. But others, you know, research is their practice. You know, researching yeah. is the work. Mm. You know, and. And that's totally great as well because there's a lot of really kind of intellectual, clever artists that are kind of you know kind of working around that that sort of area. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, to me that kind of just you know being in the studio and messing about thing, which kind of doesn't have the research question hanging over its head. Yeah. You know, is what is what I kind of you know it's why I got into. Got into this game in the first place <laughs> yeah, I suppose think, yeah. so. that
1: thing of remembering why you were doing it in the first place mm. really is so crucial you yeah know, I think that and hard to do sometimes it's real hard to do you know that kind of joy of just doing I think it can easily get lost mm. and it's not um, you know that speculative um, thing of just doing something just to do it is that spontaneity, spontaneity, whatever, whatever? That's not something that. You, it, it, research feels like that it doesn't allow that to occur. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know that it does mm-hmm. for some people, but mm-hmm. it, it, The idea of research. Doesn't sit well with that kind of chancy encounter thing. Mm-hmm. Um. I think the good thing about research and practice not being so clearly defined is just that, because it's different for everybody. But I think when the, like now the research culture in, in art and design, whatever you want to call it, that's really established and it's not that new. I mean, it's not that old. Sorry, it's like from the first ref was RA.E was like 1998, and that's when art became. That was the first time that art was trying to make itself be recognized academically mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. research subject and therefore get government funding in this country t- to support education. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really new thing. And I remember when people were beginning to talk about research and other people being upset that they that their work might not necessarily be included in that conversation. Um, for me, I don't... <coughs> I don't really think about research that much at all. I don't really think about it. I don't really think about practice that much at all. I'm just like doing stuff, you know, and, and that's, that's like a hey, piece. But I, 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 that is how I feel. I've always really liked reading and I read a lot, but I read really disparate stuff, you know, and, but it all feeds into what I'm thinking about mm-hmm. from making a piece of work. Mm-hmm. And I'm, um, you know, at the like moment I'm making a few things at once, so it's interesting, I've got like, these various kinds of things I'm reading and that are constant, even if I'm like nearly finishing something, I'm still reading stuff about it and around that mm-hmm. subject area and I, th- I find that really exciting, that there's this ongoing potential for things to develop and change I mean, I, I don't uh, have any trouble finishing anything or making decisions about that, but mm-hmm. it's more like Thank you for just saying about a project. For me, a project is making work is kind of a project, and there are things. There's so much kind of so many other things that orbit around Mm -hmm. that project. Mm -hmm. For me, that are research. You know, Mm -hmm. whether that's online stuff or proper library research or Mm -hmm. going through a junk shop. You know, I don't know, but it's. I also, I do research here, too, a little bit. You know, I do, like, discover things here or figure things out here or try to ask myself questions. I don't have that kind of same research question-y thing because it's slightly different, but... Um, yeah, and the balance is out of control. There's no balance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, but between teaching and... and making work and researching and stuff. I mean I feel really lucky to be surrounded by such amazing people. I work with some incredible people and they're super smart and the students are incredibly bright and that keeps you on your toes and that's really great Mm -hmm. that's really really genuinely inspiring especially now when it's challenging to do most things and so that I find really inspirational and so I don't and that's leading me to say that I, I don't really think that teaching has any input any impact on my practice mm-hmm. or my research but I think that the people that I work with and, and the students and the way that they think and their experience of the world and where I witness their experience of the world I think on a personal level that has an impact on me in a way that and maybe that comes into the work but I don't think teaching has ever been part of mm-hmm. my practice mm-hmm. I know for a lot of people it is and mm-hmm. it has a direct connection yeah but I don't
2: I don't feel that way for me at all. I mean teaching, i when you teach teacher, obviously PhD, MA, and I'm, I'm sort of a you know, foundation level. It's quite weird actually when you go into sort of Royal College and in sort of like PhD seminars talking about all these mm-hmm. kind of things and then I go back to you know, Medway and, and sort of go to teach kids who are sort of 17, 18. And, and there's a kind of real, you know, you're your literally at the sort of bot, you know, bottom rung of where people are dealing with art and design education, right at the very yeah. end of it. And yeah. it's quite a weird feeling, actually. Mm. And um, because you're, I think you're giving quite a lot of at that, of that age. You're kind of, you know, I mean, it's like if I think about what I was like, and I think you have to do that, I think, mm-hmm. kind of with that, with them, it's mm. like, you know, I didn't know where I was going or what I was, I just wanted to sort of, you know, someone to have some energy and kind yeah. of go, you know, yeah, just keep to, just go for it, you know, keep doing it, you know, kind of throw some paint around yeah. or kind of, you know, put that wheel on top of that, you know, chicken or whatever it is <laughs> that you want to you do and, and, um, and see what happens. And, and that this is a space in which that, that is kind of allowed. So it, you know, I suppose philosophically, you know about what education is and the importance of education is, resonates with me but I don't, I don't feel like like practice isn't about educating people or kind of anything. you know if anything it's about me trying to educate myself about the way things work actually it's a bit more, perhaps that's selfish, I don't know. Well
1: no, I was going to say I think that's the comment, I mean I often feel like I'm as hokey as it sounds I make work to try to understand the world and to try mm. to understand my relationship with it and not my situation, not my mm. position but like how how to grapple with things and what it means and I think most people are doing that with their work mm-hmm. because they don't really know and I think when you're 17 and you're really excited about something and you get really obsessed with things when you're 17 <laughs> or 18 you know you just like follow down something so yeah. so narrowly and that's so exciting mm-hmm. like, that kind of energy and that enthusiasm and that spontaneity and that desire and that drive is like so, why the fuck should you know what you're doing? You shouldn't know what you're doing, except that you just want to do it, and that's really beautiful. I mean, I actually think that that's most of us are still trying to hang on to something within that, and that, and like you know, you talk about space of make an okay space for that to occur. I think that is one of the best things about art education at whatever level. Yeah. Okay. You might have to be able to contextualize what you're doing to a much greater degree at your level. And but I still think that that kind of serendipitous experimental leap of faith thing is the same mm-hmm. and I think that's that's oh, I've never done heroin, but I bet it's better than heroin. <laughs> that kind of like moment where you go and it is really momentary it yeah. never lasts that long where you go oh my god look at that thing yeah yeah yeah
2: and then you keep coming back for more yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the heroine
1: I'm not every time. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think. I, I mean. I
2: find a lot of time is sort of spent sort of deconstructing. I think you know we're kind of in a in a world where um, you know students are at school are kind of told what's right or what's wrong. You know, grades. All these things are really kind of specialised. Mm. We're sort of quantitative kind of. Um, status in education that i don 't really know is benefiting people you know uh, the pressure is like you 're saying is to, the pressure is you should know what you're mm, yeah, you 're yeah. doing you shouldn 't know and i think you know foundations as a as a course i think is sort of struggling because because the you know well you know, the government basically don 't really kind of see it as a as a worthwhile you know, adventure you know mm. and, and yet. You know, I think a lot of students didn't have that. I mean, you might go through, you have students who go through that year and then they go, you know,
1: actually, I don't, like, this isn't for me. I want to go and... Exactly. Yeah. Do and that things. doesn't mean it's not important to them or yeah. they won't carry that yeah. Stuff with them for the rest of their life. I mean, yeah. the irony of, you're, you're totally right that, like, foundation courses and even art, the, the arts are really discredited in this country and pretty much most places, but certainly here and that's so crazy because culture is what Britain does, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's like what culture is like such a huge, integral part of everybody's Mm -hmm. life here and yet successive governments are failing to recognize that, that that is even the truth and that there are Economic There is economic potential and career, career. But there are job things in culture. Yeah, job things. Yeah, well, yeah.
2: I mean, if it's like that thing, isn't it? It's like you either, if you're going to take it on, an argument around the terms at which you know the government are talking about it, then you you know have you have to kind of fight back with the numbers, which are which everybody knows. You know, the creative industries is obviously worth billions and billions of pounds, but. But also I feel like there's a sort of argument to say, well, actually, you know, that's not the argument. It's all the argument. It's just the fact that, yeah, cu- culture is important and that should just be enough. Yeah, you
1: shouldn't have to defend it within an economic rationale. Yeah, yeah, sure. right. yeah. But if you have to, in, in the before times, we can't really talk about now, but in yeah. the before times, it's like, what, this is a service economy. Well, mm-hmm. I'm not an economist, but it's like, what, 83% of, or higher mm. of Britain's income is a service economy, and that's culture theater, restaurants, all that stuff, it's mm. not um, its not unimportant financially. Mm. We know it's important personally and socially. Mm. We know that. And we know that we don't have to defend culture or justify it, but that's because we're in it. But if you're outside of it and you're in the government, then there's no recognition of that. And it's crazy. It's mm. just insane. I mean, I don't know what will happen. I mean, that's what's scary now. Mm. It's like, what, I think a, a West End show opened last week. It was like one show. In, and I'm not a theater fan, but that's what people come here for. Mm. In the four times. You know, mm. tourism. People didn't come here to, to, for, to for the industry. You know, they weren't coming here for any other reason than the history and the culture. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to be a lot I'm not going to. Do. <laughs> important point there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so
0: coming back to the to the work I think um, I think it'd be good to talk about your show at three works Mark I guess it's a show that well I, I imagine it's a show that you've both in, been in quite not close communication but you've both had communication,
1: like that, yeah? Not that yeah, much yeah,
0: oh, yeah. Oh, okay. um, and maybe yeah, maybe you could explain about the work that's gone into that show and, and the culmination of you know, well, your work up until now that's gone
2: into that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. The the work um, is is partly the culmination of sort of some of the PhD research stuff. Um, yeah. So some so some of the work in there has been ongoing for quite quite a while, um, uh, and it's all based around uh, like I was saying. earlier, the sort of greater integration of perhaps of a sort of rational um, sort of logical kind of practice based around computation and engineering versus a sort of still this desire to kind of make things by hand um, or make things by hand but also um understand the way that we kind of experience things f- you know, f- physically mm-hmm. um, and the way that we can access kind of information i suppose in a world where physical and the the sort of physical and the virtual to use a really bad kind of binary Mm. um, of obviously kind of increasingly, increasingly blurred and um, yeah, so uh, it's three rooms in the show. Um, It's a great space. Chris, uh, who runs it, I've known known for quite a while and he's really kind of put together quite a, you know, quite an amazing space in Scarborough. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Scarborough, <laughs> uh, and uh, I uh, actually <laughs> no, it wasn't it wasn't very sunny yeah. when I was there, but <laughs> it's it, um, it's actually really I mean it's it's a really interesting place the architecture you know the kind of history of Scarborough you kind of you know around it's it was a place to go to when you're a rich you know Victorian but yeah. um, uh, so some of the buildings are really really beautiful but um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of three spaces and then three separate kind of works um all based around the machine in some sense so one is a kind of automated um projector that's kind of almost learning or trying to learn It's sort of you know learning from the space and learning itself so it's kind of um it's moving around the space so it's, it's static in the middle but the projector can turn 360 degrees it can find kind of um positions on the wall to project onto and then automatically um focus and zoom on them it uses like the technology that um uh, Google autonomous cars use to kind of sense their surroundings. Only I'm um, not really, not as good as coding, so it's kind of a bit you know it's not as, nowhere near as good. Um, so it's kind of an object that's kind of sort of sealed. It's sealed off. It's doing something, but I think when you, you know when you kind of go and see it, you're not really sure kind of what it's doing. Mm. It's using these images from geochromic eye tests to sort of um, give that impression. It's, it's trying to it's trying to sort of gather its own kind of information to improve itself, but. Mm. But you're not really sure that that's kind of what's happening in the space. Um, so that's on its own. Um, and then as you go through into the next space, there's a, another work which um, has been, it's has been sort of ongoing for a while. And it follows quite a sort of tedious <laughs> process <laughs> um, where uh, it took a long while to resolve it actually. But the process essentially that uh, um, I've got a map of the UK and uh, the computer generates random coordinates for me to to go to mm-hmm. um, and quite luckily so far none of those have been in water <laughs> uh, and the th- yeah so Which
1: is amazing considering you're never more than like 40 miles Yeah the it's answer.
2: crazy isn't it like, and um, it's uh, yeah so one, like one of the places it sent me to was like a sort of um, a field just off the M11 um, so I sort of park up on the hard shoulder <laughs> jump off and it was the nearest place yeah (laughs) so it's sort of i mean i don't you know there's a kind of a a sort of absurdity to that but um but then you know in a way it kind of responds to some of those ideas around sort of being slavish i suppose to to machines and and then bring that information that an audio recording back basically is a sort of document that then gets sort of printed out as a graph so like a sort of sound sound graph and i try to make that graph as a three-dimensional object so i turn it on a lathe out out of kennywood um, and then they get kind of sprayed out with colors which is fairly arbitrary and filmed rotating um, so they look like these kind of sort of ruins columns semi-architectural kind of and they're set in black so they're kind of slightly kind of futuristic sci-fi i realize there's quite a strong sci-fi thing going on <laughs> um, uh, and then and then they're kind of filmed, and then the film of it is a kind of continuous loop. But the computer, this is where it starts to from here. The computer pulls apart that film, and uh, the same the same microcomputer tells me where to go, and it it takes that information and it, it pulls out like three minutes of film into what, about four thousand frames. I don't know, my math isn't ringing, but about four thousand frames, and it selects one of those frames and it corrupts it, it, hacks it, it kind of opens it up as text and deletes part of it, and then it recompiles the film again and you, you kind of get this sort of glitch you know this kind of thing so eventually over time it just keeps looping like that mm. and eventually over time obviously that, that kind of image of the column the, rot- the rotating film of the column will, will just go to black it'll just kind of sort of disappear so all that effort all that work just becomes kind of sort of Nothing, <laughs> nothing in the end, yeah. yeah. Uh, and at the same time, there's the sound, it, it kind of creates this sound. So uh, I didn't want to just replicate the sound. So the sound is, it automatically chooses a frame within the film, and then it reads the, um, uh, reads it as a sort of array of data, and then turns that data into, are you still awake? And then it turns that <laughs> data into audio, yeah. um, which, which um, kind of again sounds, quite sort of odd, oh, yeah. it has a sort of low humming, yeah. It's almost like a, it almost sounds like a sort of data centre mm-hmm. actually when you kind of turn an image like that back into, so it kind of has this sort of weird resonance that then filters into the other spaces in the gallery as well. And it goes like that, so it takes about, about eight minutes for it to kind of do all that um, processing and then the film plays and eight minutes off and eight minutes, you know, right. eight minutes, three minutes, eight minutes, three minutes, something like that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in that same space, and I've also linked it to the kind of space itself, so that it it's kind of there's a light that comes on on and off that synchronises that, and then I've added in loads of sort of cabling to kind of make it look, you know, that, that kind of goes out of the back of the space, and it so it looks a bit like it's kind of connected to something, but or it's connected to the exterior somehow. Yeah. That. Um, that's in the middle, and then and then the final room has some works so, that uh, are again sort of ongoing series that are these auto, or I sort of call them auto assemblages, that are um, again go through quite a sort of laborious process of taking bits or offcuts of stuff in the studio or spares or stuff that I've collected and, and drawing it up in CAD and then using um, some game design software to sort of drop them onto each other to make these kind of weird um, models Mm. And I can play with the kind of sort of fictional gravity of the, of, the, of the game software or the rules of kind of vertices that might sort of cross um, to then create these kind of objects that then I try and make in real life that are kind of by hand. Mm. Um, and at the moment they've ended up as wall, a sort of wall, kind of, piece of sort of wall ornamental. The ones at the moment they've got quite a sort of weird sort of Memphis design, mm. '80s thing going on. They start to end up like portrait, which is—I mean—I have no control over that. Mm-hmm. um It's quite interesting that they kind of, you know, because if you start to mess around with things, it usually ends up looking a bit like a face. Actually, so it's kind of weird that the computer started to sort of do that. But um yeah, and they're just then set in space, and the space is painted this blue colour again, it was chosen by the computer. The whole thing is kind of like a, a sort of collaboration, I suppose, between me and the machine, and this kind of agency. My agency is kind of given away a bit. I'm kind of interested in in the potential uh, as well as the limit of kind of working with machines I suppose mm. I, it's not necessarily a show that's sort of saying machines are really bad um, and like that you know they don't do anything good at all and they're not they're, not, they're not, I'm not saying that they're fantastic things that we should all kind of you know we should just let ourselves go to a world of technology but mm. um, I think it's a really complex relationship that we have with technology the way it asks us to do things the way we want it to do things and. Uh, And I think we really, you know, kind of have to think about both the processes that we can see when we work with machines and the processes that we can't see, the things that are going on, you know, under the hood, you know, things that, you know, and I I really love taking things apart, and I think that's probably where it all comes from. (laughs) It's
1: it's really interesting to hear you talk about the work. I mean, I've heard you talk about it before, but um, what you haven't said is how beautiful it is and how there's always some kind of, Seductive thing happening on a visual level, and also it's really interesting just listening to you talk now. Is that um, I've known the work for a long, and I think if I haven't seen the show, um, I've seen the work, but I've not seen it installed in that way, and not definitely not physically realized. And I think I imagine that if I went to see the show and I didn't know you and I didn't know anything about your work, and uh, maybe I don't even know anything about art, I think I may. I can still get some of the work because on a purely visual level it's really beautiful and there's something compelling about it. It's like you don't really fully understand what's happening but after a little while it doesn't matter that you don't understand it because it feels, it's like you just get some level of acceptance in not understanding. It's not like you don't know anything but, uh, like, usually, forgive me because this can sound really fucked up, but the machines have a point, and they have a function, and they do things, you know, whether they're doing what we want them to do or, or not, something else, and, mm. but they don't often have some kind of freedom, mm. or some kind of... Freedoms. I I don't want to say like unknowability about them. Yeah. But like you create these machines that they aren't predictable and they are free. They do what they within limitations they do what they want, and you you don't know what that is. You can't set that out. And I think that that kind of freedom comes across in the work. Even if you don't understand it, you know that it's doing something else that machines don't ordinarily do. Mm -hmm. But I think that I think. Comes to me trying to say, it's like if I saw the show as a show, I wouldn't—and this is a compliment, it's not a like sour one uh, i wouldn't necessarily think about the research behind it. I would take it at face value, and that—that that would take me deeper into the work. So, as autonomous yet connected art objects and things, art things, installations, whatever—they really make sense to mm-hmm. audiences. If you understand the research, if you come to understand the research in another way, whether through reading or through conversation, then it's it's just richer. Mm. It's not, because sometimes there's that moment where things are on precipice and you think, if I know more about this I'm going to dislike it Mm. or it's going to make me like it more. Mm. Liking it more doesn't happen that much to me, it's usually like the reveal. but I like it when the reveal just doesn't give you everything. I, I like that a lot. I don't want to know everything. I really I don't want to know everything. And I think that's another thing, too, is that it's, it has some mysterious thing going on. It feels familiar, but it's not. like mm-hmm. the Memphis thing, or you know, the portrait thing, I think that's we're drawn, humans, we're drawn to make sense of things. We're drawn to logic out and narrativize anthropomorphize mm. every frickin' thing that mm. we encounter. Mm. When, if we just let go of that, then we're not trying to force something on something else and that's, it's really hard for us to do that. Mm.
2: I think that, I think it is really hard. I mean, the, I think like, at the show it was really interesting because there are lots of people who kind of, you know, when, I think when you're there, like a private view, I really hate that, because people, particularly work with machines, because people come at you and they go, what does it do, what's it doing? what does yeah. it do? And and I, you know, I, I, rather than coming up with the explanation that Jordan had just done, i kind of sort of make a cheap joke about something or other.
1: Yeah, that's because it's your work. If it, if it were my work, you would then explain it. Yeah. It's, it's about your... Sorry. Yeah. but It's about ones. So I can never say that properly, but it's like you your own relationship mm-hmm. with what you do. Yeah. I don't agree with what I do, like front and centre. I'm sure you do too. You know, it's, that's just part of our impartial sort of dinner. Yeah.
2: But I suppose it's also about just wanting to... Not you know, like, like say, he wants to hide things. Sometimes wants oh, to hold so things back. A bit well,
1: yeah. there is that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think.
2: Sorry. I, I don't. Yeah, I think. I think so. I think. Try a little bit. Yeah, big like, man, big. But I think. I think. Yeah. I mean, why not? I mean, I do remember that is something. I like, remember you said like when we, you know, obviously years ago, you said you know there's nothing wrong with making people work hard or spending time with the work. Um, it's
1: so a great thing. You know, People benefit from it. They
2: actually want that to happen in their lives. They yeah. do. They really do. Yeah. So, sorry Sorry. but it's true. Yeah. Sorry. So I think I think the sort of the, the sort of seductive. I mean, I, I think work has definitely become more theatrical. Not not more theatrical, but more. Like I never used to work with colour. Even really, everything was just very you know I'm um, talking about. But you know when we first met everything was just plain wood and kind of metal and, and whatever and i think i was working through something else and but color now i think you know i don't i don't have a massive knowledge of color theory and mm. i don't I, and i think in the, in the work it's one thing that actually has kind of totally um changed things and interestingly it's the one thing that i i kind of haven't really had to research <laughs> because it's just been something that i kind of react you know reacted to kind of thinking, yeah. well, I wanted to kind of amp up, almost like amp it up, you know, kind of this sense of like um, a, fisi- a sort of fisi- a fisi- visuality of kind of like, you know, look at me, you know, I'm kind, I'm kind of, I'm, you know, not not look at me, but kind of, I'm doing some, I'm doing something, you know, yeah, kind it's, of, I'm, I'm, though, before, it's work, performing, isn't it? I suppose yeah, so. um,
1: work changes though, and research changes. It just is, you know, to say it's alive, but it changes, and it should change. It's you know, I think making art isn't ever certain. And, you know, you discover a few things and then you get bored of them, or you need to alter them, or they just aren't what they were a day ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the blessing and the curse, is the constant search for something, and the perpetual dissatisfaction for momentary glimpses of okayness or, like, when something comes together, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of synchronistic moment, and but that's okay. That's why it doesn't do anything. That's you know, that's why it doesn't have a purpose except to be what it is. Mm-hmm. It's why its function is to exist in the world in the state that it is. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why people, when they're asking you, "What does it do?" You know, we live in a culture where answers are easily given all the time, mm-hmm. and maybe it's okay to not have answers once in a while, <laughs> just once in a while. <laughs> You know, I think it doesn't mean that's not a bad thing about the work. I think it's a really good thing about the work. I just... <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I just... Um, I, I, I prefer to read about things afterwards. I don't like to go to some shows yeah. and know everything about a show. I'd I, I rather just take it face value, mm-hmm. which is not a superficial thing face value, it's just this is what it is. This is my encounter with this is like uninformed. And I prefer to be informed maybe after the fact. Not always, but mm-hmm. a certain level of information is okay, but I don't want to know everything about something. And you know, if you think about like music and how t- how many times you've I don't know, it happens to me all the time, or I've heard a piece of music thousands of times, and then I suddenly hear something and I've never heard mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. It's always been there. It's just me that's different. Mm. You know, that's incredible. You know? I think that, that
2: can happen with art all the time, too. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, even the art that you make, isn't it? You kind of leave something, you can come back to it like six months later and mm. go, oh, wow, actually, I didn't realize it was. <laughs> yeah, I wish. Yeah. Oh, wow, well, that's amazing. I, I, I am that tedious out <laughs> <Yeah.
1: Ooh. laughs> oh,
2: <my God. laughs> And sit back and relax.
1: Call me down. I <laughs> could <laughs> Yeah. Will you use Docker? Uh, your email signature?
2: I don't know. I've not really thought about it, I suppose. You sure. should. Definitely. When you get. When I get, yeah. A little way to go, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's such a stupid activity-making art. That's why it's so great, though. It's, like, it's such a dumb thing to do. It's like... But it, can, it really takes you places, and it's amazing what it can actually do to your head. Yeah. It's great.
2: Can you, can you remember your last moment of synchronicity, when it kind of all...
1: I, I can, actually. Oh, yeah. It's... Uh, yeah, I don't know how to say this. Um, I, th- I often find that um, if I'm making, uh, I made a piece of work last year which at the time I thought man this is just so fucking good but it was a piece of shit. <laughs> it's really terrible <laughs> but if I hadn't made that piece of work I couldn't have made this other piece of work because there was one moment in this piece of work which oh, it's so good, it's a piece of shit there was one moment in that piece of work which actually was halfway decent and I took that and thought, okay, I've just like overcomplexified everything in my life and this work. I'll just simplify it. Yeah. And I took that forward. But I also in that same piece of work I I yeah, I um I had discovered something that I just didn't know. And it was it, it's so stupid. But it was like, oh my god, it makes sense. Mm. And it was a title. And I, it was, I had called something, uh, it's a thing I did during lockdown, that fabula thing. That, yeah. Which I didn't know that there's a kind of a moth called fabula until after I made that. Oh. And I was referring to both like, the Latin fabula of narrative. Mm. And then to, somebody sent me something about another kind of moth. And I looked it up, and it's related, to, and they didn't know about a fabulous moth either. And so it, when I looked that up and and found a fabulous moth, I was like, wow, that's really fucking great. Mm-hmm. That's just a that, just a chance thing. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't claim anything for that, but it was really it was really great. It was it means nothing, and it's stupid, but. At that moment, it was like, wow, this is really special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, totally sober. <laughs> but it was. It was like, oh wow, this is like, there's something. I don't believe in God or any kind of big mysterious force in the universe, but there was something else there. Yeah. yeah.
2: It's a zeitgeist. In Jesus the Christ.
1: Christ. <laughs> 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 yeah. How
2: about you? Uh, no, I can't remember really. I, the thing I was thinking about was um, like writing code, and um, and you can like the syntax errors in code. Obviously, like you know, you just get one semicolon on wrong, and everything you know is mm. is, is messed up. And mm. and I remember in the studio, just I must have spent about six hours trying to get this thing going and, and, and I, I kind of sort of closed my eyes and sort of I think I fell asleep for about five minutes or so and woke up and suddenly it was just I just saw it. I just saw it, I just suddenly went that's what I've not been doing. Deleted it, rewrote it and it and it all and it all just sort of came together. And I, I literally danced around the studio. I totally
1: get that.
2: And you know, I mean if someone had walked in they would have thought I'd lost it or lost it even further. And er uh, yeah, no, but I, you know, it, it kind of, I felt like, oh yeah, no, you know, now what I've been thinking about, it was the right thing. I just kind of hadn't seen it. It's that kind of feeling. Yeah, you know, yeah,
1: I had a similar moment again making that film. It wasn't the title. It was that moment where I was like, that previous piece of work was really just so terrible. But there's that ten seconds in there that I did yeah. not stretch out over five minutes. <laughs> and I remember thinking, it was a similar situation. I was here, I was so pissed off, and I was not happy, it wasn't going well, and then I had this moment, it was like, oh my God. <laughs> it was just this thing, in the back of my brain, exploded, it was like, there's something there, I could just yeah. do that instead. And it was like, and I, and someone called at that moment, and I was like, oh, I'm so happy right now, I can't <laughs> tell you. And they're like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, it's just a decision.
2: <laughs> it it's means a lot decision. to me. Okay. <laughs> I
1: can't
0: tell you because it's just makes even more dumb. But I'm just having fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a nice, a nice way to kind of round our time off. We're actually, we're actually kind of up to. Seven years. Yeah. <laughs> just. <laughs> just. Um, but before we end, there's always two questions oh, I okay. ask I guess at the end. Um, Mark, you may have prepared something.
2: Well, well it I doesn't look you like you have. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like so, know what you're going to ask, but
0: I So, so the, first, the first question I ask everyone, and you can answer either of you first, is if you could swap seats with me and mm-hmm. visit anyone in history go to their studio or wherever it might be and ask them questions like I'm asking you. What, who would you visit and what would you want to ask them? Living or dead? Yeah, living
1: or dead. Fucking
2: <laughs> I for something. Yeah. Good times. Um, I mean, I, I, well, I had a, I had a dream. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> I had a dream. Um, a few nights ago, about um, that I was uh, in New York driving a really battered old Volvo, um, driving around uh, trying to find like the sort of all these sort of different junkyards in New York with Sean um, Tangley and Nicky De Sant'Faro in the back of the Volvo, <laughs> and we were just driving around and he he, <laughs> he got really drunk. And, uh, and I ended up having to kind of go searching around. And I didn't really know what I was looking for. But I just filled the boot up in this Volvo full of kind of interesting things. And I thought, but I woke up and I thought, well, what was that all about? <laughs> but then I did think, David's going to ask me that really annoying question <laughs> in a week's time. And I thought, actually, that would be quite, you know, a, yeah. as a couple, you know, mm-hmm. if I can have to, Yeah, yeah, have to. yeah I like that you know, kind of hang out. I might feel a bit third-wheely, but, you know, it'd be, I think they're, they're quite an interesting, mm. um, you know, she's amazing and, and you know, obviously he, he's someone who I, I sort of really like, but, you know, she's, you know, she's, she's pretty, um, she's pretty amazing. So I think the other two of them maybe, together, mm. in a chat. in a Volvo in New York. Nice. It's <laughs> a good Is French. Do you speak French? Uh, a little, a little bit, yeah. Were they talking
1: French in your
2: opinion? Uh, oh, n- oh no, I don't know actually. No, I don't think so. Do you speak in foreign languages when you dream, is that...? Can you speak in foreign languages? I think I think in dreams, so you can't do anything No one told me <laughs> that. <laughs> that. Well then. <laughs> in that case...
1: <laughs> yeah, this is only because it was on my mind earlier today, but it's not an, it's not a visual artist, but do studio. Studio. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know when it was, in the early 70s, maybe when Aretha Franklin went to um, stacks, And I've, I think that that, um, you know, it's not really a visual art thing, but I think anyone, I, I, what interests me about that moment is she made some huge, a huge change of direction in her thinking and and her singing and and her approach to music and and everything and and she'd been wrestling with the whole secular thing anyway and it was almost as if that opportunity kind of enabled her to become the person that she wanted to be for a, a moment in time and the music that came from those sections was Really incredible. We had a, a welcome party, so I was saying to you earlier the Zoom party from now, which I had to leave early to come here. So thank you. <laughs> um, and we were we all had to introduce ourselves and play a little piece of music and I had just been think that um, Aretha Franklin's song Save Me from that first record in Memphis it was just br- breathtaking, you know, mm-hmm. and there's just something about that record that is really joyful and really dark at the same time. As someone being so out of control they can't help themselves. And it's um yeah, it's just such a great piece of music. So that might be why I'm thinking mm-hmm. about that. Art-wise, God almighty, I've no idea. I really don't okay, I just thought you can about... okay, go. Okay, no, that's I'll shut up It's not really art though either. It's more um Um,
2: yeah, no, I'll start with everything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. That's a pretty good place to
1: start.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, And the last, uh, the last question is, has it been um, anything, any piece of advice that you've been given or anything that you've been told that's kind of stuck with you throughout your, well, artistic life or any Area of your life?
1: <laughs> I can go, I'm well, go. Yeah, you go okay. through it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the best advice I ever got was from a really nasty, um, unkind uh, gym teacher named Mr. Finkleday. Mr. Fink. Uh, I only had lived in that town for a, only lived there for a brief period, but he was my uh, baseball, football and running coach. And he was pretty brutal and he was not a very nice man, but... um, No, he was pretty brutal and not a very nice man, period. He did say something to me once which has always stayed with me. And it makes so much sense and I just wish it hadn't come from him, but it did. Uh, And that is that... um, You know, I wasn't the best baseball player, (laughs) I wasn't the best football player. I was a better runner than either of them. I loved baseball, but I wasn't great, but I could do it play but running I wanted to be much better than I was because I was okay but I wasn't as good as I wanted to be and he said look there's always going to be someone faster than you always someone slower than you and always someone right at your side just ignore them just run your own race and I think about that all the time that was like one of the most important things that anybody has ever said to me just ignore what other people don't compare yourself to others I've expanded on Mr. Faint wisdom. but um, <laughs> you know, just the Fink philosophy. <laughs> Ooh, with an F. Or PA's <laughs> well, for Fink. It was definitely an that. Um, I don't remember his first name. But he was handsome. Anyway, I just think, you know, you it is as hard as it is, you can't compare yourself to other people. It's really hard to do not to do that because mm. we do it all the time. That's mm. how we are as, as creatures. But in making art it's really it's a bit of a dangerous thing to do. Mm. It's hard not to but you know, I think about Mr. think more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember having Have a you I heard con- that to you? No. But run I'm, your own race? Run your own race. Just sit with me now. Oh,
2: run your own race. I remember having a conversation with another artist who I won't name. She said, um, she said, when you get to 30, you've got to stop giving a fuck. you know, Get to what? Giving a fuck. You've got to just, you know, just don't care what other people think. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I can't win. I'm sort of you you know, ten, 10 years later, I'm still thinking, "When is that moment going to come?" You know? um, but yeah, I don't I, I probably, I've had lots of advice and help over the years from lots of different people who've said, probably very important things to me, so mm. But uh, I mean, Jordan once I remember having a conversation once and Jordan said, "So said, just remember, it's a slow burn.) <laughs> And I think that sort of stuck with me because it's that idea actually of kind of, I think we're talking about kind of practice and, and that actually sometimes, you know, you see people and they kind of seem to be mm. doing really well and they're kind of, you know, getting shows everywhere and they're kind of, you know, fantastic, you know, whatever and, and um, but yeah, like you like saying, don't compare, compare yourself to others and just keep doing what you're, what you're doing, you know, is kind of mm. how, I read, how I read that. So that was, that was a good bit of advice.
1: Cool.
0: Um, and the last thing—it's not a question—but is anything you'd like to plug? Any people? Any places? Anything you'd like to let people
2: know about? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my, my brother's got a book out, a poetry book out, which I thoroughly recommend. What's his name? Robert Selby. Available apps? Uh, Waterstones, Blackwells, and Amazon all and it, online. Called cool. what's it called? Uh, the Coming Down Time. The Coming Down Time. Yeah, it's a sort of collection. It's, it's quite. Um, it's some of the work connects a little bit. Old and it's in three parts but um, it's, it's very from recently, no? Yeah, past sort of yeah, month I suppose. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, it's yeah, it's very beautiful and a kind of sort of I think in you know, although it was meant to have this kind of opening and a uh, physical opening obviously which didn't happen happen of lockdown, but um, it the the kind of poems kind of are an ode I suppose in a way to the natural world and that connection with sort of the outside world and I think it's a good it's a good read for the current current time. So yeah, I'd about right. that. Yeah. I'll be buying it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might sneak sneak your free copy <laughs> if I can. <laughs> so are they
1: gonna do readings here in the UK? Is he gonna to come to the UK to
2: do that? Uh, it's my younger brother okay. who, he's here any he, he's uh, he's here over here anyway and he um, yeah, I think they are going to have a sort of event where they do some reading. So we I recorded yes. them reading and made a little website for them so you can hear and read some of the oh nice some of the poems. But um, is uh, is that website live? Yeah, yeah, the dot dot I think oh. there's a link there to go and buy okay. the. Buy I'll the, post the, that on the on the notes. Yeah, the that'd I'll be great. Them. That'd be amazing. I'm sure. He'd, yeah, you'd really appreciate that. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. No problem.
1: Mark Show in Scarborough. Is it?
0: <laughs> what what when what are the opening times or when, does it, when is it when's it on in the, it, until?
2: Is it, it's on until the twenty second of October, so I don't know if this will go out before it'll go out uh, on the s- about the seventh of October, so yeah. Okay, yes yeah, so it'll still be on and uh Thursday to uh, Sunday I think, twelve till four or five. Okay. Um you don't have to book, but um obviously with the current situation I'd email Chris. Um, Chris info at 3 Um just to check but yeah I mean I'd love it if people could go and see it and uh, yeah. while, while it's on mm. yeah yeah it'd be, it'd be yeah make my day it's definitely one to experience yeah I think it yeah yeah I'm going to try and document it photographs and mm. I'll be trying to video it as well but obviously it's not how long is it on for again when is it end? so 22nd of October so it's been yeah four weeks it's going to be going to be on for Good.
1: Yeah. Plenty of time to rush out and see it then. Plenty yeah. Time. <laughs> Plenty of time. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. That
0: was I really yeah. appreciate it. Well. well, thank you very much for listening. Please find more information about what was discussed in the podcast in the notes section. And if you like what you heard, and would like to keep up to date with new episodes, um, then please subscribe or follow us, depending on which listening platform you use. And head over to our Instagram page, at To The Studio, which we regularly update with posts about each guest we have, and all other goings on as well. To The Studio is produced by the Audio Wizard, an all-round great guy that is Theo Bird, and I would thoroughly recommend getting in touch with him for all your audio needs. On Instagram, he is birdperson, bird is spelt B-Y-R-D, person. Also, if you can spare a moment to leave us a lovely review, and that would help us out a lot, and it allows us to reach a few more ears than we are currently. And lastly, if you've got any suggestions or opinions you wish to share with us, then please feel free to do so on any of our social media platforms, or send us over an email. Our details are, again, in um, the notes section. Uh, of each episode of the podcast well thanks very much again for listening and we'll see you next time